Good day. Great to see you this morning as we deal with this uncomfortable subject of Jesus being the judge. Is that right? What does it mean? How do we escape judgment if he is the judge? They're the kind of questions we'll be dealing with this morning. How about I pray? Father, we thank you for your word and we pray this morning as we engage with uh, what might be for some of us scary and some of us comforting thoughts, we pray that we'll be wiser as we walk out of here. Uh, please help us to know the truth, help us to see what is real and whether Jesus really is this judge who holds our lives in his hand. And if he is, we pray please that we will uh, make ourselves right with you or even better that you will make us right with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I wonder if anyone knows who this man is. Uh, uh, yeah, Kevin. Idi Amin. Yes, it's not Forrest Whitaker, uh, who played Idi Amin in The Last King of Scotland, uh, which is one of the titles Idi Amin gave himself, uh, which is kind of strange because he was in Uganda. But anyway, uh, he gave himself lots of titles. Uh, and uh, he used to be on the news all the time, once upon a time, but the final news report about Idi Amin came out on August the 25th, 2003. Here it is. I've got it written here. Idi Amin, aged 80, utterly ruthless former dictator of Uganda, has died in Saudi Arabia where he lived a life of luxury and exile with several wives and 22 of his children. During an eight-year reign that plunged a prosperous nation into desperate poverty, the one-time military boxing champion used slaughter as a form of statecraft. The son of a peasant farmer and a mother who practiced sorcery, the nearly illiterate Amin joined the British colonial army in 1946. Nine years after Uganda achieved independence in 1962, he led a successful coup and then embarked on a murderous campaign against political opponents and rival ethnic groups that left as many as 500,000 people dead. That's half a million people. He also expelled tens of thousands of Asian traders, depriving Uganda of much of its business class. Amin was ousted at last in April 1979 after Tanzanian troops responded to a Ugandan invasion, entering the capital Kampala and forced him to flee. Uh, where did he flee to? Well, he fled to Saudi Arabia, where he lived the last 24 years of his life in luxury, where he died peacefully in his sleep, surrounded by his wives and children. Is that fair? Half a million people dead, incredible pain and misery, and he got away with it. He got away with it. There's no punishment, there's no justice. He just died peacefully in his sleep, surrounded by his family. Does that bother you that that's the case? One of the things that we all want in life is justice. We want things to be fair whether it's in international affairs when there's some outrage and the nation depends that we go and do something about it, whether it's in criminal behaviour when someone everyone knows is guilty gets off, maybe because of some you know, oversight by the police or, or whatever it might happen to be, or whether it's uh, in politics, in positions of authority when they're abused for personal gain, and not that we've seen any of that recently, and pleasure... Uh, or whether it's on the footy field, you know, Gus Gould is always calling, that's not fair, uh, send him off ref. Uh, people are constantly calling for justice. I mean, every single day in our household, we hear that complaint from our children over and over again, it's not fair. 
Maybe you're familiar with that experience. It's not fair she got more grapes than I did. It's not fair that she won that game even though she won the game and you didn't. Anyway, it's not fair she got to play with the iPad and I didn't. It's not fair. It's not fair. It's not fair. And perhaps you live with that feeling yourself that things are not fair, that things are not right. Maybe you've been overlooked in life. Maybe you've been rejected unfairly from something or a relationship. Maybe you've been overlooked at work. Perhaps you've been hurt uh, in the past by someone, maybe even in terrible ways, and it's permanently damaged you and you know they're still out there and nothing's been done about it. That feeling of unfairness is something that many of us feel very, very acutely. And so our subject today is something that concerns us all. We're thinking about judgment and particularly we're thinking about Jesus' own claim that he is the judge. And as we hear his own words this morning and seek to come to terms with the truth of them, I want us to grasp that each of us will be judged by him one day and that judgment is going to have everlasting consequences one way or the other. Jesus did not back away from speaking about heaven and hell. In fact, of the 12 times that hell is mentioned in the New Testament, Jesus spoke about 11 of those 12. He is the hellfire preacher uh, of hellfire preachers. But he also talks of heaven and joy in the afterlife as well. Now, the incident we're looking at is recorded for us in John chapter 5. It's not the only time that Jesus spoke about this kind of thing. It was a regular feature of his teaching, but this is just the occasion that I've picked for today. And you'll see it on that little handout that you might have got on your way in if you want to follow along, or you can look it up in the Bibles there as well, John chapter 5, verses 16 to 30. And our passage here follows on from an incident where Jesus has just healed a man uh, who'd been paralysed for 38 years. 38 years he'd been a crippled beggar all that time, and yet with just a word... This man's made whole again. His his, uh, deformed uh, back and legs all come back into place. The tendons regrets all instantly. uh, And he stands up and he walks home uh, in great joy, leaping and praising God. But the whole thing provokes a very heated discussion with the religious leaders of the day about who this Jesus is. And they find themselves sitting in judgment over Jesus much like people do today, debating about him, disbelieving, discounting everything he has to say. They sit in judgment over Jesus. But in response to their disbelief and accusations, Jesus tells them, and he tells us, three simple things about himself that all relate to this subject of judgment. He tells us that he is the one who will judge. He tells us when he will judge, it will be at the end of time. And... The best news of all, he gives us the basis of his judgment so that we can know how he will decide, so we can know how to be on the right side come judgment day. So first thing, Jesus understands his work, at least in part, to be a work of judgment. He is the judge. Now, people have trouble thinking, well, isn't Jesus really nice and compassionate? He said it lots of times and he says it very explicitly here. He says it in verse 22, and I don't think he could have been even any more clear about it. You see there? The Father, that is God the Father, judges no one. He's entrusted all judgment to the Son. And he's speaking about himself there. In fact, one of the criticisms that the religious leaders 
have is that he's calling God his own father, therefore making himself equal with God. You heard that in the reading. So he's saying, I have been entrusted with all judgment. He implies the same thing in verse 24 where he says, if a person trusts in me, he will not be condemned. I'm the one who gets to decide people's future. But he states it in the absolute strongest terms in verses 27 and 28 there. Jesus again is talking about himself when he says, the Father, he has given him, me, authority to judge. And he has done this because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. By myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself but him who sent me. So there's no mistaking Jesus' claim. All of the work of God has been given to me to do, he says. My work is judgment and my judgment is going to be completely fair and just and I'm going to be judging everyone. And I think the whole thing is underlined by the titles that Jesus claims for himself there. Uh, He calls himself the Son of God in that passage, which is actually a title from the Old Testament where in places like Psalm 2, God the Father gives his Son all nations to do with as he will. Ask of me, says God, and I will make the nations your heritage. And so the Son of God, yeah, the Son of God is a title for the one to whom everything belongs, and he judges all at the end. But then he also talks here about being the Son of Man, verse 27 again. God has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. And that that title's a bit weird too, but it comes from Daniel chapter 7, where one like a son of man comes to the Ancient of Days, to God, and he's given all dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, languages and nations should serve him. And so I think there's really no escaping uh, that Jesus the man, Jesus the figure of history, Jesus the one who broke into history, who is a fact in the table of history, Jesus of Nazareth claimed to be the judge of all, the one in whose hands is the power to determine our eternal destination. When you die, says Jesus, at the end of time, you will meet me in judgment. Now, if that's true, and we might debate that and we'll talk about that later on, if that's true, is that a good thing or a scary thing? Who, who thought that was, that's a good thing? Who thinks that's a scary thing? Who doesn't know what the question means? I don't know. <laughs> who thinks it's both? It's good and it's scary. All right. Well, personally, I think it's both. It's a good thing. Idi Amin will have to answer for his crimes. There will be justice. That's a good thing, isn't it? Think of the thousands and tens of thousands and millions, not just in Uganda, but across the world through the ages, who've never seen justice in this life and who have no recourse to a fair system of justice. They live in countries where the politicians and the the magistrates are corrupt. It's, It's a wonderful thing that there is justice at the end. Thank God for that. And who better than Jesus to be the judge? I mean, if you could pick anyone else in all of history 
to be the one to judge all of humanity, would, would you pick anyone else instead? I don't think you could pick anyone better than him. I mean, he's perfectly qualified. Even just looking at his earthly life, he was incorruptible. People tried. He has absolute integrity. He can't be bought off. He lived a life of sinless purity. He would not yield when pressured to change his course. He, would not, uh, he was exposed to the absolutes of temptation and stress and pressure and trial and, and he lived in sinless perfection. He even died because he would not change his course. What better person is there to be the judge? And if he's right about his claims about you know, his relationship with the Father, then he's God. Well, well, then he knows all, he sees all, he is just, impartial, incorruptible, pure. He knows the secrets of men's hearts, every idle thought. What better person would you give the power to to be to judge? So in that respect too, I think it's a good thing, it's a great thing, a wonderful thing. But that makes it even more scary, doesn't it? Because what it means in the end is that it's only really Jesus' opinion of me that really matters in the end. We, we spend our lives trying to impress people, don't we? Make people happy, make them try and think well of us. But really, if he is, if he is our judge, then it's only his opinion that counts because he will decide my eternal fate. And not just my fate, but the fate of every person. So that's the first thing. Jesus says he is the judge, and Jesus is the judge. But secondly, Jesus teaches when he will exercise this judgment. He says he will judge at the end, at the end of the ages, at the end of this world, against his own words in verses 27 and 28. And he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. He says, do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Uh, you know, there, there will be a time when everyone who has died throughout the history of the world will come to meet me. Jesus speaking about that time at the end of history when the world will be wrapped up as we know it today. And he says at that moment, the Son of Man will stand and he will summon people out of their graves. Uh, bodies will be reconstituted. And as he does, he'll call each of us forward. Each one of us personally, individually to judgment. You will be judged and I will be judged and every man, woman and child across the globe and down through history. He will judge all at the end of time and the result of his judgment, he says, will be eternal. It'll be eternal. Now, if that's true, well, then it means that this world is not simply spinning aimlessly. That there actually is meaning and purpose. There's a goal, there's a beginning and there's an end and it's heading somewhere. There is ultimate meaning to life. Now, I know as well as you do that talking about this kind of stuff, talking about final judgment, uh, when everyone's fate for eternity will be decided, is a very unpopular thing to do. Anyone, you know, just bring that up for the fun of it with their friends. You know, kind of, yeah, hey, Jesus is going to judge. Yeah, you're down the RSL, uh, out to dinner with your friends, lull in the conversation and... You know, I reckon, I reckon Jesus is going to send a lot of people to hell uh, and, and some people to heaven, I, you know. Uh, that would be the social equivalent, I reckon, of dropping your guts. 
know, <laughs> yeah, just letting out a big, <laughs> and you probably get the same reaction from people, right? Bringing that up in conversation, you know, some will laugh, uh, some will hide their face in shame, <laughs> and you know, uh, some might even walk away. Now, I reckon there's a couple of reasons that it's become so socially unacceptable because a hundred years ago. Uh, it was just talked about all the time, whether you're going to meet your maker and how you're going to meet him and all those kind of things. So what has changed in the last hundred years or so that we don't discuss it? I think one reason is that we just don't generally like discussing anything deep and meaningful anymore. We avoid serious conversations wherever possible. We're all about light and froth and bubbles in general. I mean, our conversations, and, you know, about footy and stuff like that. You know, it's a, what is footy? It's, it's a bunch of grown men chasing a leather thing around a paddock. I mean, that, that's all it is. And yet, we, we embrace that as the meaning of life almost. You, you get that if, if you gauged our conversations by what we thought was important by the amount of time we talked about stuff like that. Or for some, it's hockey or other things. But we're about froth and bubbles. I mean, you think about the internet. And here is this great technological revolution with the power to share all knowledge of human of humanity through all ages now and what are the things that are most commonly viewed by this incredible power cats number one internet traffic thing is pictures and videos of cats Second most viewed thing, knitting patterns. Third highest, pornography. Cats, knitting, pornography. That's what we use this incredible power to do. But I think our general conversations are much the same. Froth and bubbles, distractions, to keep us from anything that might be confronting. So that's one reason. But I suspect there's something much deeper going on socially because of where we stand in the history of ideas. See, back at the end of the 19th century, that was a while ago for those who can't count, um, the German philosopher, uh, this person here, with an amazing moustache, Friedrich Nietzsche, declared God is dead in this little book he wrote. Uh, He called it a tract. It's actually quite long. But anyway, thus spoke Zarathustra or something. Uh, He said, God is dead and we have killed him. Atheism reigns. We've triumphed. Those religious people should just shut up and stop talking because God's dead. But then he wrote another tract because everyone didn't instantly become atheists on his recommendation. Uh, This one is called Twilight of the Idols. Uh, I had the enormous displeasure of reading a great hunk of that yesterday. And in it, he announced that Christianity, with its emphasis on final judgment, was, as he calls it, the metaphysics of the hangman. Okay, It's people who want power and want to control other people's lives. Um, They call on this imaginary being who's going to judge you so that I can force you to do life the way I want you to do life. And I can put you down. Uh, that's what preachers use God, this imaginary being who's going to judge in order to control people's behaviour. And he says that it's 
it actually makes us subhuman because the the real human embraces their passions and just does what they like. They sleep with who they want. They go and hurt who they want. In fact, he says we need, this is bizarre, we all need to create enemies because then we're stronger uh, and we can crush them. And that's good for us. But it's all about passion and and he's saying the religious people who have this judge are actually anti-human. They're dehumanising people because they tell people not to go with their natural instincts. Now, we all know where Nietzsche's philosophy finally found its climax not long afterwards in Germany in the middle of the 20th century. But that's what happens when you take God and judgment completely out of the equation. There's no, there's no controls, there's no arbiter, and, and no wonder. And likewise, Idi Amin, Pol Pot, Stalin, Lenin, all avowed atheists who went around slaughtering people left, right and centre, they, they just believe this stuff. And I find it incredibly scary that exactly the same lines of argument are being pushed today by the celebrity atheists. We're getting a rerun of what was happening in the late 1800s and the early 1900s. And this has become the popular to-read books that are out there, like The God Delusion, things like that. You know, if you believe, as Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens and so on do, that we're simply a product of random mutations of DNA, random chance and necessity, in the words of Jacques Monod, then the idea of ultimate judgment and justice and accountability goes out the window. It's all just a matter of chance. It's all random and you just do what you want. Uh, Here's uh, what Richard Dawkins has to say on the matter. In a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky and you won't find any rhyme or reason to it nor any justice. So if your family were murdered by Idi Amin, tough cookies. If you were abused by Rolf Harris or seduced by a federal politician who shall remain nameless, that's just the way it is. DNA is like that. Suck it up. Stop being a princess. <laughs> and I find that my friends, my, my unbelieving friends and family, are really uncomfortable with that conclusion. But it is logical if you follow it through. It's the logical conclusion, but everyone's uncomfortable with it. And because they have this deep ingrained sense of right and wrong, and this stuff doesn't wash with them. You can't just do what they like. They cry for justice. They demand justice. My kids are screaming for justice. They stamp their feet. They want things to be fair. But they can't see the inconsistencies if there is no God to judge. They want justice, but I suspect they really just don't want to face it themselves. And so they deny God and live with the ambiguity. But Nietzsche and Dawkins and the friend who doesn't want to believe in Judgment Day, they are only right if Jesus is wrong. They are only right if Jesus is wrong. And if Jesus is right then at the end of time, he will, as the Son of Man, summon all people from their graves to come before him for judgment. There will be a final reckoning. 
the play will end, the clock will stop, the curtain will fall, we will be called to account. So who's right? Can we actually know? Do we just have to pick and choose what suits us and what's going to suit our lifestyle? Is it possible that there's any evidence whatsoever that Jesus is not just a raving lunatic uh, seeking to manipulate people to his peculiar religion uh, because of an overblown God complex? Well, actually, he's given plenty of evidence for it. For a start, he's just called, in this chapter, a paralysed man who's been paralysed for 38 years from his bed and restored him instantly in the sight of them all. Even the Pharisees and teachers of the law who hated him, they saw him do it and they had no doubt it was real. Later on in John's biography of Jesus, uh, he raises Lazarus from the dead. He'd been in the tomb four days. In the King James Version, all the people would think if he opened the tomb, he would stinketh. Um, But Jesus calls him forth and he comes back out of the tomb alive. You can read about that in chapter 11. Again, his enemies who were there saw it and had no doubt that it happened. But what they did instantly afterwards was plot to kill him. And Lazarus. We can't have dead alive people walking around, so we'll have to kill him again. And the guy who healed him. And so here is a man who does have the power over life and death, who literally does speak and the dead hear his voice and come out of the grave. But the biggest proof, indeed the proof God himself says he offers, is that Jesus rose triumphant from the grave. In Acts chapter 17, Paul is speaking to a bunch of Greek philosophers who would have loved to debate metaphysical realities and postulate about whether there were things like God or gods and life after death. Uh, Dawkins and Hitchens and Nietzsche would have fitted right in there. But Paul silences them all when he comes to the conclusion of his speech and he says this. He says, God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed and he has given proof of this by raising him from the dead. You want to know if there is a judgment day? Go find out if Jesus came back to life. It all turns on his resurrection. If he's still dead, do what you want. Go and murder some Ugandans. Who cares? But if he's right... Now, I mentioned last week a little booklet, The Evidence for the Resurrection. I printed off another bunch of them today. They were just there, but I don't know, maybe the 8 o'clockers took them all. I can always print more uh, if they're not around. Uh, you know, do the work. See for yourself. It's by a high-flying English lawyer who served as advisor to the British Parliament before his death. Uh, come to our Jesus is Real Night. Uh, it's on Thursday week um, where, where Matt Payne is going to be taking us through Uh, and our friends through, anyone who wants to come along, whether it's possible to be a sensible 21st century thinker and still be a Christian. Can can you do both? And he's going to say, of course you can. In fact, it's the only sensible choice. But come and work it out. You need to find out for yourself because if Jesus did die and he did rise again, then he really is the judge who will decide our eternal fates come judgment day. 
Well, then final thing, what's the basis of Jesus' judgment going to be? How is he going to decide on us? That would be a pretty handy thing to know where we stand, right? And the answer is in verse 29. You see it there? He will judge between good and evil. I'll pick it up at 28. Do not be amazed at this, for the time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. Now, does that mean that he's going to you know, weigh our deeds uh, somehow on some balance and that only the really, really bad people, you know, the idiomins of this world, are going to face the resurrection of judgment? But decent people like you and me are only going to get uh, life? Uh, What's the pass mark? How do, you, how do you know if you've been good enough on that scale? You know, how, how good do you have to be? Well, it's not quite as simple as that, is it? Because just black, glance back at verse 24 for a second. Because it's a parallel statement and, and you get to find out what the good is. Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned or will not be judged. He has crossed over from death to life. We've got to be clear on it. You hear what he's saying there. For a start, he's saying there's two realms. There's the realm of life, and there's the realm of death and condemnation. And the implication of what he's saying there in verse 24 is that all of us, by nature, find ourselves in the realm of death and condemnation. That's our starting point. Yes, in varying degrees, but... But all of us find ourselves under condemnation for none of us have lived a life good enough to face the perfect judge at the end of time. Now you know that already, I take it. And I know that. I mean, we all fall short of our own standards and the standards of other people, let alone God's perfect standards, don't we? Do do you live up to your own standards? You say, I don't lie, I'm not a liar. Have you ever lied? I've... (laughs) can't think at the time but I'm sure I've done it in the last 24 hours we all fall short but look again at the verse very truly I tell you whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged they have crossed over from death to life what does it mean to be good how is God Jesus going to judge that Well, the good is to hear Jesus' word and entrust yourself to him. That's that's who passes through into life. You hear his word and you entrust yourself to him. Look, just suppose that this little feedback card here uh, represents you for a moment. Uh, And and that this, well, let's go with a hymn book. This hymn book here uh, represents Jesus. There you go. Now, outside of Jesus is, is the realm of death and condemnation where I find myself uh, for a start. But what this is saying is that, you know, if we're in Jesus, if we're trusting him, we belong to him, it's as if we're uh, em- enveloped in him, we're with him, we're protected and safe in him. So that if he brings us into life, well, if he's there, I'm with him, I get life. Now, he's not explaining here how he's going to deal with the real guilt that 
I have because it needs to be dealt with. But he, he's not describing it here. Uh, you know, he's not just going to pretend my sins don't exist. Jesus never plays make-believe. He knows exactly what's in my life. The answer, as it happens, lies in the cross where he's going to be laying down his life for us. He talks about that in John chapter 10, for instance, if you want to read ahead. He, he does that to pay for our debt. And it's incredibly loving that he does that. I mean, here is the judge of the universe who steps down from the bench and takes upon himself the, the judgment that he's just handed out. You imagine, you know, I, I guess you don't do this deliberately, but you, you happen to be caught speeding one day by a policeman and he pulls you over and he comes up and he says, do you realise, Wendy, that you were doing 120 in a 40 zone? <laughs> Because when he's got a lead foot. <laughs> but you know what? I'm going to dock the points from my own licence and I'm going to pay your fine for you. Could you imagine a policeman doing that? <laughs> Not likely. <laughs> Jesus the judge steps out from behind the judge's bench and takes the judgment upon himself. It's incredibly loving. And he pays for sin and justice is done. But because he's done that, if I trust him, if I accept him, then I can know the judge is my friend. I belong to him. But if I won't listen to him, if I won't entrust myself to him, then I stand condemned. I will have to face judgment day alone in my own sins, unforgiven. And so it's whether you listen to him, believe him and come to him that's the basis of his judgment. And so I guess we've all got to ask ourselves, each one of us, I do and you do, where do we stand with this judge? Where do we stand with Jesus? For come judgment day, there'll be no excuses, there'll be no escape, there'll be no means of running from his judgment, no place to hide. He will stand and he will summon all to judgment. Saddam Hussein was caught a few years ago, dragged off to America where he faced trial, and he said, I do not believe in the authority of this court. Well, bully for him. They found him guilty and had him executed a couple of days later. Believing it or not is not the point, it's whether it's real. Jesus is the judge and he will judge you whether you believe in his authority or not. I walked down the street the other day, had lunch at Tio's, one of my favourite places to have lunch. Portuguese burger, amazing. The secret better thing that no one knows about is the chicken and mushroom uh, pasta. But anyway, that's, it's, just, it's just so fattening though. Anyway, And I'm watching my figure obviously. Uh, <laughs> But I had lunch at TA's outside and there's, a, there's some chairs on the street. And, and wandering by was, was a couple uh, walking arm in arm. I assume they were married to each other. Uh, saw a couple of rings. Uh, they will meet God one day. Jesus Christ in judgment. 
there was a young bloke walking by, music playing on his iPhone as he went along, loud enough to everyone could hear what he was listening to. Uh, I wouldn't really call it music, but anyway. He will meet God, Jesus Christ, in judgment. Jesus will summon him to judgment. Then an old lady was hobbling by on a walking stick. Ski injury, I presume. She will meet him in judgment. You will be summoned. I will be summoned. Jesus is saying this not out of hate, but because he loves us so very much. And he's telling us so that we can have life as we hear his voice and do the right thing as we trust him. And as we trust him who is good and right and pure and true, because of his death on the cross, we cross over from death into life from condemnation to forgiveness, from hatred to friendship. But if you refuse to do what is right, then you'll meet him in judgment and it will not go well. This is Jesus. He is the judge. I wonder, do you know him? Do you know him? Let's pray. Jesus said, my judgment is just. We praise you, our Father in heaven, for the Lord Jesus, that his judgment is just. And we pray that you'll help each of us to do what is right, to do the good thing, what is self-evidently the right and proper thing to do, to hear his words and to believe you, the Father, who lovingly sent your Son to the cross so that we might come over from death into life. Help us to trust him. Help us to throw ourselves on his mercy. Help us to come to him. We pray for those who still wonder if this is true, that you would help them to do the hard work of working through the evidence themselves that they might come to see the truth. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.